Well, somebody needs to get that man a doctor. Is there a doctor in the house? This morning we are talking about Dr. Asclepius, one of the Greek gods. Homer, in his book, The Iliad, describing Asclepius, described him as merely a doctor. But later on, as the years of Greek myth will progress, he will turn into the myth of being not only a doctor, but a god himself. He will be the god-man. A little bit about Asclepius, he was a grandfatherly figure that people related to. He wasn't as intimidating as the other gods. His, uh, the term Asclepius is one that you come in contact with almost daily, certainly weekly. If you look at his staff, he's got a staff with a snake going around it. That is actually where we get the idea of the caduceus, where you see it on medical symbols, you see it on hospitals. Every time you see that, you'll see the staff and you'll see the snake going around it. That comes directly from Asclepius. Asclepius and the temples of Asclepius are actually the basis of modern, believe it or not, modern hospitals, modern advances in medicine began with some of the incredible advances made by those in the temples of Asclepius. If you've ever used the word hygiene, we need to have good hygiene. That is Asclepius's daughter, hygiene. And so the idea that many of us had never heard of Asclepius we actually are in touch with medical care, in touch with these symbols, in touch with the idea of cleanliness. Many of this was developed by the followers of Asclepius. He was the doctor. More than that, he claimed to be the living water. More than that, he claimed to be the God-man. More than that, he claimed to have a healing snake. And into this world, where Asclepius was the doctor, Jesus will come into this world with all these myths about Asclepius. And he'll say, no, no, I am the great physician. Into a world that Asclepius claimed to be the living water, Jesus will come and say, no, no, I am the living water. In a world that Asclepius claimed to have a healing snake, Jesus will say, no, I am the ultimate bronze snake lifted up. In a world where Asclepius was the God-man, Jesus will say, no, you're not the God-man. I am the God-man. And so these two physicians, these two doctors, these two claims will come into a clash with one another. And the question we have in regard to these two characters is the question you and I have every day. When you're sick, you want to seek out the best doctor. So the question is, who is the best doctor? Is it Asclepius or is it Jesus? We're going to look at these three contrasts together because each one of them have a different diagnosis and a different prescription for life. So let's begin with living water. Living water as we enter the temple of Asclepius. I get a chance to visit one of his temples, although they were all over the world, from Jerusalem to Greece to even some of the areas uh, where I was in modern-day Turkey. Here in this area, you'll see a framework for what it looked like. There was a giant center. It was a medical center. On the right is what it looked like in its heyday. You'll see the theater up there on the far right side. The different pillars that you walked in, this was a modern, in its day, unheard of advancements in medical technology. They studied roots, they studied vegetation, all types of ways in which they could find healing for you. As you walked into the center, we'll look at the next slide, you came upon an area where there was right in the middle of the complex a fountain. This was Asclepius' fountain. He was the living water. His water would bring healing to you. They've done some studies of the water that came out of this natural spring and found it had magnesium in the water. And when you drank it, it actually helped calm your stomach, much like milk of magnesia does today. 
They've also found that there was radiation coming out of the ground through that spring, and there were some natural implications and benefits of the radiation regarding skin cancers and other things coming out of this water. I don't know. It's not my expertise, but that's what they said uh, on the signs when we were there. The next thing you noted is you zoom out from the living water. You'd see in Asclepius' temple were pillars where there were patient rooms. Next slide. Right behind those pillars were patient rooms. You would come in, you would get your care, and doctors would examine you. And they would talk about your health and your stress. They would describe to you that maybe you weren't handling your stress well and you need more rest, that you need to have better, better mental practices. In fact, they had every day a theater which would perform both a tragedy and a comedy. If you look in the top left section, that's the theater. They found that the natural chemicals released when you laughed and when you cried helped with healing. So every day their patients would attend a comedy and they would attend a tragedy. If you were healed, and many were, you actually would take whatever was healed. It might be your, your leg, it might be your hand, it might be your eye. Whatever was healed, they would make a sculpture of that body part, and you would be given your own white stone with your name on it. So as you came in, along these white stones would be sculptures of body parts with your name. Chad, healed of athlete's foot. You know, Bob, eyesight restored. And this was like incredible PR, right? Because you're coming into the medical center and you got to see, look at all those who've been healed before me. Maybe I can be part of this. I took some video while I was there. I'd like to get you a, a feel for what it was like to walk into the temple of Asclepius and to feel that. So let's watch that video together. And I want to tell you the story of Ambrosia, different video. Ambrosia was one of the myths that she did not believe in Asclepius' ability to heal. So you came into the main center. You would walk through. It would be different pillars here. You'd come across this fountain. It looks like a latrine now, but actually it was this beautiful fountain. And it was said that Asclepius' living water could be mixed with mud and put over your eyes, and you could actually be healed of blindness. Well, Ambrosia was skeptical of this, but sure enough, they took the water, as the myth says, they mixed it with the mud, put it upon her eyes, and her skepticism was removed as she was healed of her blindness. She attended one of those patient rooms, and then she would have gone into the inner priest chamber. Amazing area. You go down under the ground into this incredible tunnel system that has light coming from the top. As you walked into it, you were expecting to hear from Asclepius via the voice of the priests. They would speak to you on behalf of the god Asclepius and tell you what you needed to do to be healed, to find healing, to pursue health. As you walk through the chamber, you wondered, what would God say to me? What would he tell me to do? What would I experience? The Greeks developed this giant chamber at the end of that tunnel that you would walk into. And it actually has these, these funnels up at the top, almost like a gutters. And the priest would actually be up on the other side outside the temple and would speak through these gutters and tell you, you need to take your medicine. You need to rest more. Asclepius says he will heal you. And the booming voices in this inner chamber, you would sense was God speaking to you. And you would use his advice and follow that because he was the living water. So that is the myth of Asclepius. And when you go to his temple, it's mixed with actual facts of modern medical advancement with myth of what had happened in the past. And it's into that culture, into that myth, Jesus steps in and that John writes the account of Jesus' historic uh, events and teachings to a group very knowledgeable 
of the Greek myths. And one of the accounts he gives is a very weird Bible story. As you read it, I've read it as a kid, I thought, why is that in there? And the first one we occur is this idea that Jesus claims to be the light of the world, unlike Apollo, who claimed to be the light of the world. But then he launches into a weird account of what he does with a man born blind. It says, when he had said these things, I'm the light of the world, he spat on the ground, Jesus did, and he made clay with the saliva. He anointed the eyes of a blind man with the mud from the water in his mouth. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and he came back seeing. Now we say, well, that's weird. That's nice. You may believe in the Bible. You may not believe in the Bible. But here's what the Greeks reading this would have said. Oh, my goodness. Jesus doesn't need a fountain. He did it with his own mouth. Jesus' living water is better than Asclepius' water. Now, the difference between the myth of Asclepius is whenever he healed ambrosia, nobody's lived since then. You can't talk to anybody. In this case, there were eyewitness accounts of this blind man. You could talk to him. Even when the book of John was written, he said, go and talk to the eyewitnesses. They're still here today. This actually happened, which means Jesus accomplished in reality what Asclepius only claimed to do in myth. And all of a sudden you had the attention of the Greek audience. Now, for years, people mocked this account in John 9 saying it didn't happen because this pool of Siloam had never been found until 2004. Ironically, they're putting in a sewer system in Israel. And as they're putting in this new sewer line on the right hand side, they stumbled across some some archaeological finds. As they begin to unpack it, and it's only about half restored at the moment, they came across what you see on the left is an artist's rendering of what they've come to find as the pool of Siloam, exactly as the Bible described it in John 9. That this is the location he did it. The second area that we see Jesus encounter Asclepius in the living water is in another pool. This is the pool of Bethesda. And here in Bethesda, this was a pool right next to the temple in Jerusalem. So this was a temple set up to the God of the Bible. But Herod, who built it, wanted to make sure he had all his bases covered. So he had sort of temples to all the gods. So you went to the temple of the God of the Bible, but if you just stepped outside of it, he'd set up another temple to Asclepius. And here Jesus comes face to face with the temple of Asclepius at the pool of Bethesda. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. It's probably the feast of Purim from the book of Esther. Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. The sheep gate was where you would bring the sheep who would be sacrificed so that you could make a way that God would, uh, you could be back in harmony with God and find forgiveness. So this giant pool the Bible talked about was filled with water used to wash during these ceremonies, which is in Hebrew called Bethesda. It has five porches. Now, up until the early 1900s, skeptics mocked the Bible. No one has ever found a pool in Jerusalem with five porches. This mockery. But in the 1900s, they uncovered these archaeological finds and found this massive, like I stood there on the edge, I mean, that's 50 feet down pool of water. And sure enough, it had five porches. But just on the other side of the porch, you'll see this next picture. Just on the other side of the pool is a temple that's set up to a Greek god, and not just any Greek god, to the Greek god Asclepius. 
And here on one of these five porches is a sick man who's been sick for 38 years. The exact number of years the Jews and the Hebrews wandered in the desert. I think John wrote that little detail in to remind us that God works with people who are unfaithful and disobedient or confused. God wants to work with everyone. So this man who's been sick for 38 years, Jesus saw him lying there at the temple of Asclepius, hoping that he could throw himself into the water when it stirred and the angel, the messenger sent from Asclepius, would heal him. Do you want to be made well, Jesus says. The sick man answered him, I would, but sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. That was a superstition. Jesus said to him, forget the pool, forget Asclepius, forget the angel. How about just right now you rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And here we have an ultimate clash where Jesus does at the temple of Asclepius what Asclepius can't do. And the audience is stunned by Jesus' power, but even more so he's stunned that Jesus does what Asclepius can't right here in his own temple. So when Jesus, also in John, turns to a woman, a Samaritan woman, a woman with five husbands, a woman with not a great reputation, and says, whoever drinks of the water I'm giving, or this water from the fountain you're looking at, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I'm going to give will never thirst. The water that I give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. Now, this was not at the temple of Asclepius. But if you're reading this account... In John, you would have said, Jesus is saying, Asclepius isn't the living water. He's the living water. And Jesus is giving a very distinct prescription and diagnosis in life. His diagnosis is that you and I are filled with guilt and shame and wrongdoing. You might say, well, I don't believe that. Well, let me ask you this. Do you live up to your own standards? Like, I don't. I know I should obey the golden rule. I know I should do unto others as I have, I'd want them to do unto me. But I don't. I mean, I don't think I've ever gone an hour really rejoicing with people the way I rejoice with myself. I don't think I've ever gone an hour really giving other people the benefit of the doubt the way I give myself the benefit of the doubt. I don't think I've ever financially given to other people the way I give to myself. Now, you're probably better than I am. So you're probably living up to your standards. But the diagnosis of Jesus is that we're not. Whatever God's standards are, forget that for a moment. Are you even living up to your own standards? Jesus, the doctor, comes and says, my diagnosis is you're in trouble. You're sick. You're not living up to your own standards, let alone mine. And here's what's bizarre. And my prescription is not go try harder. My prescription is not go be religious. My prescription is not go to church. My prescription is me. You need me the doctor, to live in you, to forgive you, and to begin to work with these habits you've developed over the years. I can make you right with God and begin to become the doctor that heals you spiritually, emotionally, and even physically at times. So that's living water. Well, then we come face to face with another contrast, and that's the healing snake. If you see a picture of Asclepius, you'll see that he has a staff with a snake wrapped around it. Here's a zoom in on the right-hand side of his snake. Some of the pillars around Asclepius' temple have little snakes coming alongside this wheel. He was the healing snake. And so the idea that you look to the snake as your healer, you worship the snake, you thank God for the snake, and even the fact our hospitals today have snakes on it, comes from Asclepius. So when Jesus is going to reference a healing snake, and he will, by the way, isn't Jesus just copying off the Greeks? 
Isn't he just going, well, they got a snake. I need a snake. Where's my snake? Now, many people think this, and you're going to hear this objection. Uh, and at first glance, you'd think that. So let's zoom out a moment and look at a timeline, as we've done in this series, and see that Jesus and the apostles are living between 30 to 70 A.D. Alexander the Great made uh, Asclepius very popular, starting in the 300s. But even as far back as 750, when Homer wrote the Iliad, Asclepius wasn't even a god then. He was just a doctor, if you read Homer's Iliad. So even his story has changed over time, that of, of Asclepius. But way before all of that, 1500 B.C., we hear the story of Moses in the book of Numbers. And look what he references. Now, let me tell you, set the stage here before I read it. God has led his people, Red Sea crossing, incredible plagues. He goes, I got you out of there. Now I want you to trust me. The same God who rescued you is trustworthy. And don't do this and don't do that. Watch out, there's danger over there. And they are complaining and they're critical. And they're like, oh, we don't want to trust this God, even though you got us out of here. Well, they end up in their complaining disobedience, doing what a lot of our kids do. They do exactly what we told them not to do. And sure enough, they wander into this area and they get bit by poisonous snakes. Oh, ow, Oh, and they come to God. Oh, like our kids do. Oh, so sorry. Wow. That, oh, that really hurt. You know, and God, what should I do? And here's what God tells Moses to tell the disobedient kids to find healing and forgiveness. Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze servant, he lived. At first glance, you might say, that sounds like the worst superstition. Let's look at the magic bronze snake and I'm going to be healed. I don't think that's what God's saying. I think God is saying, I want you to look up at that snake. That was the consequence that you experienced through disobedience. You got bit. So when you look up at the snake, it's a way of saying, I deserve this. My bad disobedience led to this. I'm acknowledging my fault and I'm asking God to forgive me for my fault. I think that's what the meaning of this was. Well, you can easily see how 750 years later, the Greeks got it. They're like, you know what we need? We need a snake on a pole. Well, where do they get the snake on the pole? From Moses 750 years later or earlier. I remember my uh, dad, my son and I went to Sturgis, which is a big motorcycle rally. My dad's been to Sturgis 20-plus times. He motorcycle rides all the way from Illinois to South Dakota. It's 20-something hours. I'm like, I'll trailer. <laughs> My butt can't handle that, Dad. You've lost feeling your butt years ago. So I'm driving the trailer, and we're stopping by uh, uh, Wall's Drug Store, which is like Gatlinburg mixed with a drug store, if you can even imagine that. It's a tourist trap of a drug store. It's bizarre. You see signs for it for 500 miles. We're pulling up. And my son is on the motorcycle with my dad and the other motorcycle uh, guys, probably seven or eight of them with us. So they're on a motorcycle, driving up the ramp. I'm in the trailer. I'm pulling up first. I got him on radio. And there is a rattlesnake right on the ramp. Like I'm pulling up and it is mad. The car in front of me just hit it and it is ticked. I mean, he's jumping up and down. I mean, there's no one near it, but it's ready to get you. Now I'm in the truck. I'm not concerned. I was actually kind of intrigued. It's a rattlesnake. But then I'm thinking, my dad and my son are behind me on a motorcycle. Now you're a lot closer to the rattlesnake. So I'm like, it's rattlesnake in the road, rattlesnake in the road. Watch out for the rattlesnake. And so they sort of swerve around. We pull into Walsh Drug. We get there. My dad's like, we got to go back. Dad, why would we go back? 
When I was a kid in college, I found a rattlesnake with my uncle. And we, we took a pocket knife and we cut the end of it off. And I actually had this rattlesnake in my hat. Chad, you need one of these. <laughs> Dad, I don't wear a hat. Oh, but it's so cool. You'll, you'll start wearing a hat if you had a rattlesnake. He hands me his pocket knife. A pocket knife. I got him on a mission trip my junior year of high school. So, still got your pocket knife. Why don't you go back and cut off the rattlesnake's tail? He's serious. I said, Dad, I don't know if it's dead or not, but if it's mostly dead, to quote Princess Bride, I'm not going to go up to a rattlesnake with a pocket knife and go, ah, right? And if I did, what would you say? What a moron. What a moron you are, Chad, that you went up and tried to cut the end of a rattlesnake. Well, my dad gets in the car after about a half hour there, and he's like, well, I'm going to try it. (laughs) All right. So he goes back. He gets there, and apparently an 18-wheeler had come over because now the snake is deep and wide, and the rattle was long gone. But this is what's going on here is that people have done something stupid. They've gotten bit by the snake, and God is saying, I'm going to lift the snake up, and you acknowledge your wrongdoing, and I will bring you healing. Now, Jesus brings up this exact idea in the book of John. Actually, a verse you've probably heard of before, John 3.16, maybe at a football game. But the verse right before it is about this healing snake. No one ascends to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. That is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses, not Greeks, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him, Jesus, should not perish but have eternal life. And here's a verse you may have heard before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. All right. You're ready to be nervous. So Jesus says, I'm going to get up on a pole. And as he's standing on this pole, he says, just as the serpent came up, you would look at the serpent and said, I caused this. In the same way, Jesus is saying, I'm up on a pole. I have been crucified. I will be crucified. You need to look to me and say, I acknowledge that I put you there. It was my wrongdoing. It was my lack of living up to my own standards. And so you're acknowledging that it was your fault Jesus died, that he had to be raised up, and that he would bring you healing and forgiveness. Ready to get nervous again? Okay. So that's what, thank you, thank you. It's a gift. I don't talk about it much. Um, Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I am the ultimate one who took the consequences for what you've done. I am the ultimate healing consequence that Moses talked about. And the ultimate sickness that each one of us have is self-righteousness, a rebellion, thinking we can run our own life, putting ourselves in the place of God, and I will come and heal your ultimate problem. And we all got different sicknesses. You start with the big one. The big one is you think you're God, and you've put yourself in the place of God, and you need to acknowledge that you, because of that, I had to die for you. And when, when, when you realize that God has forgiven you the ultimate sickness, that does something so powerful in your heart, you actually want to go... And help other people with their sickness, spiritual, physical, and otherwise. We sent a team down to Cancun two weeks ago. I got a chance to be part of. This last week, we had a team in Belize. These are doctors. These are nurses. These are pharmacists who have been so impacted by the message of a God who was lifted up to forgive them, where we get the medical symbol idea today. But they say, I need to go and help those with sickness all around the world, people who could never give me anything in return. I'll give you a few stories that I heard from this week from the team that went there. One, 
Apparently, and again, you doctors know better than me, apparently when you're forming in the womb, your ears sort of move up as you're developing. This one, I can't remember, it was a girl or a boy, her ear didn't move with it on her right-hand side, so her auditory um, nerves and all the pieces parts to her ear internally are there, but her ear stayed on her cheek. So her ear is here, so imagine you're four or five years old and you have an ear on your cheek. You can still sort of hear, but you don't have the funnel system. So one of our surgical team was removing the ear from her cheek, and they are going to, over the next six months to a year, begin to construct her a new ear. Because they're motivated by a God who came and found us in need and broken and need to be healed. I heard a story this week about a girl. We've we've encountered her a few times. When she was six or seven, she was pulling some beans, hot beans off, and scalded, burned her face, burned the hair off her, her head, And so our doctors go back every six months now, not just a year, because we're trying to form back the skin on her head so we can move her hair back. And so the last team was there, did some work on her hair, and amazingly, our our surgical team was able to, again, begin to repair her skin, move her hair just a little bit farther back, and moving more and more toward healing. That's what our teams do. Folks who can never afford it, we give away about $2 million worth of services during the week of Belize that were down there, helping people because we believe they're made in God's image. In San Victor, a little village that we work in, we build homes for this little village. In fact, it's been 13 plus years we've been there. There are now 70 homes in this little village built by the teams that have come from the Impact of Horizon. In fact, in Belize, most of the girls and boys work in the cane field or or girls end up in prostitution just to make money. And so we found that for something like $150 a year, $150 a year, you could send your kids to their equivalent of college, more high school, but no one goes because they can't afford it. So we had a party where 105 kids were brought in, and they got a chance to uh, celebrate that because of the work and generosity of those here at our church who have given and supported them, we had a big party, and they wrote letters, a stack of them. I've not read them yet, but I heard people tell me about reading them that said things like, thank you for believing in me. You are making my dreams come true. I'm going to prove worthy of this. You've changed my life. 105 kids come to a party because years ago, those of us who've been touched by the great physician said we have got to go and be God's arms, be God's eyes, be God's medical care to those who are hurting in the world. We believe that because Jesus healed us from the ultimate snake bite, we want to go and help those with physical needs. The third contrast we see, though, between Asclepius and Jesus is the God-man. Let me tell you a little about the God-man real quick. The God-man's interesting because Zeus has a son named Apollo, and he is a god, Apollo the god, the light. But Apollo marries a woman, a mortal, named Coronis, and they have an offspring, which is Asclepius, the living water. But notice, Asclepius is half god and half man. He is the God-man. He is God and he is man. So when the Christians come to play, and, and we describe Jesus as not half God, half man, he's 100% God and 100% man, you might think we're copying off the Greeks again, unless you go back to Isaiah. Isaiah, preceding Alexander the Great by 300 years, described to us, you hear this around Christmas time, for unto us a child is born, a mortal will be born, but a son of God will be given. That the Messiah will be two parts, he'll be born child and given son. So the idea that the Messiah would be the God-man was very prevalent in the Bible. Many passages, but here's one simple one you might know from Christmas. 
This was so, so um, unique. Then the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we describe God. God's not an equation. He's not a philosophy. He's not a religion. He's a person and a person that entered history. And what's so powerful about that, let me tell you why you'd want this to be true. You might say, I don't even know if I believe Jesus is God. Here's why you'd want it to be true. It says in Hebrews, we have a high priest. We have a religious leader. We have God in the flesh who's able to sympathize with our weakness. It actually is a double negative. We don't have one who can't sympathize with our weakness, which is a, a Greek construction of saying, because he's been here, he can relate. He's walked in your shoes. If you have had injustice in your life, something terrible has happened to you or to someone you love, Jesus says, I know what you're talking about. My cousin John the Baptist, brutally murdered and beheaded, and I wept. If you've mourned or grieved, I know what that's like. I, I've walked by my pal Lazarus' house. On the other hand, if you'd say, well, I have a lot of influence, I have a lot of power, Jesus says, I know what that's like too. I was like the rock star in my day. 5,000 people came out in a town that didn't even hold that many people for me to feed them uh, food. Jesus was a rock star. He knew popularity. He knew pressures. He hung out with the top lawyers, the top religious leaders. He hung out with the Sanhedrin. They were the one percenters. Jesus can relate whatever you've been through. He has been in those circumstances and yet without sin, meaning without compromise. He found a way under the pressures of life and the challenges of popularity to be poor and to be rich, to have access and to not have access. And Jesus continually found a way to do it by living up to his and God's own standards. That's what it means without sin. Therefore, and I love this, let us, therefore, if that's true, if Jesus is the God-man, if God really came to earth and he really forgives you, he really wants to befriend you, you can boldly come to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. If God came to earth for you, when you're in need, you can not say, well, God, I know you've got better things going on than me. You can boldly say, God, I know you love me and you came to earth for me. I need help here. And he listens. Do you see why you'd want that to be true? And if it even is true, which I think it is, it's so powerful because God can sympathize and empathize with us because he's been there. He's felt betrayal. He's felt the sting of rejection. He knows what it's like to have people cheer your name and three days later they say crucify you. He has been there. He's the God man. You know, in his book... Finding God in the Questions, ABC medical correspondent Timothy Johnson wrote a book. Now, this is not honestly the best book um, because I reference a lot of books about people's spiritual journey from skepticism to faith. I'd give this scale one to ten, about a six. But it's very fascinating to see a medical uh, journey by Timothy Johnson of how he wrestled with the questions of science and faith and how he came to believe the Bible is true and Jesus is who he says he was. So of all the books I recommend, maybe this one will ring true to you because you're in the medical field. This is ABC correspondent describing his journey of finding Jesus was the best doctor. And what the Bible says about him really was true. You know, when you're sick, you seek out the best doctor. When you and I are sick, we seek out the best doctor. So here's the question I have for us. And then I'm going to have you hear a story of somebody. Will you trust his diagnosis and will you trust his prescription for life that he is what you need that he has what you 
want, that he has the comfort, the strength, the hope you've been longing for. It really comes down to one thing. It's trust, right? If you're going to go under surgery, you've got to trust the credentials of the doctor. You've got to trust that this surgeon knows what they're talking about. It's about trust, ultimately, isn't it? You're going to put yourself under submission to his leadership, his surgical work on your life. He's going to look at the inner parts of your life you don't show nobody. In the same way, you say, God, I'm going to trust you to be my great physician. I want to trust that you can fix what's broken in me. Will you trust him to be your living water? Will you trust him to be the ultimate healing snake? Will you trust him to be the God man that can provide you access to the one who made you? I want you to hear a story of somebody who's done just that. Somebody you may recognize, the famous Kenny Cowden. Can we welcome Kenny up to the stage? <laughs> I want your autograph, man. Oh, my goodness. I, I don't want it to go un, unnoticed that, that uh, aside from standing on that, Chad listed this solid stone pillar. That's true. I should have faked it like a Widmore, should I? Now, many of you know Kenny. What you may not know is Kenny has been at the church longer than me. So uh, once I got hired, because Kenny and a team of volunteers and others thought they'd take a risk on me, so I'm always thankful for that. Um, but tell us a little about your journey. Some people know you as the guy who sings, but... What's happened to you since you've been at Horizon, your faith journey? Well, I've been here um, somewhere in the middle of my 14th year here at Horizon. Um, since way back in the get-go, uh, I started as just a guitar player that uh, thought it was kind of cool. And I, God's finger just kept poking at me through this whole whole journey. And uh, a few years, well, more than a few now, uh, I, I was baptized and I turned my life over to Christ in the Linder's backyard. Yeah, we used Before to do it. we had this beautiful mm-hmm. thing, we did it in a lender's pool. And uh, about 2007, things started to change in my life. I had a, uh, My marriage suffered a pretty good snake bite, uh, as she's been talking about this mm-hmm. morning. Um, and uh, I was so thankful that through, through faith, I was prompted to, uh, to hang in there and work through it. Um, and... That ended up not working out. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, around 2007, 2008, I was started to have a lot of trouble singing. And I didn't know what was going on. I thought, well, I'm just stressed out. I'm tired all the time. i got four kids. I don't want to ever sleep. I work uh, six gigs a week plus being here. Um, and I thought that's what it is. But then it started to feel different. And I went to the doctor. And uh, I went to see a, a, a vocal specialist and uh, the surgeon. And they... Chad loves this part. They, they stuck a fiber optic camera up my nostril and down my throat. While you're awake. Yeah. He likes to hear that part. So Thank you. Yeah, thanks for over reminding me. Mm-hmm. Keep and, going. And, Keep going. Uh, they find a large polyp. Uh, and and in, the, in the large scheme of things, it's just a polyp on my vocal cords, but that's how I make my living. I'm self-employed. And uh, it brought a lot of fear into my life. And then my, my marriage was uh, in, in dire straits at the time. And uh, I just kept praying on it, and uh, that's kind of... Yeah, and I remember a lot of fear. was we were trying to just help you. You're scared about you know, your livelihood. You're scared of what this meant for you. And you're scared about you know, surgery. You felt like you couldn't afford the surgery, let alone if you got the surgery. Not only was it the cost of the surgery, but it was the cost of being off work for, what, 60 days or something? Yeah, two months. Yeah, so all that income, and plus you work on some of these gigs you've been doing for, what, 10, 20 uh, years, some of them. Blind limit for 31 years. Yeah. 
So these are gigs you work for. You're going to lose those gigs. Your whole livelihood's on the line. And so many people, we've always loved uh, Kenny, and many people in the church came to us, several folks, in fact, and said, hey, I've heard this is going on with Kenny. Uh, we've noticed he's had a, some voice issues, and um, we'd love to, to help him and to love on him. And so we approached Kenny as a church and said, there's some folks in the church who want to help you, and they want to help you get well, and they want uh, to help you in your journey. And um, so we, we offered that it to you, and you, of course, responded with fear that uh, I, I don't accept uh, praise or gifts very well. No, you're terrible at it. Yeah, I just terrible. That. You're uh, terrible at it. I don't know why. Uh, and I, I prayed hard on it, and, and then I started to think, you know, again, my faith kept getting stronger. The, the, the beauty to my whole journey has been that things that should have knocked me off my, my, my faith foundation just kept growing stronger and I finally decided that if, if God had put these, these, these people in my, my church family here in place for me who, who was I to not accept the gift mm-hmm. um, and, and I, you know, part of my fear was all the great, great things that you get done with the money that rather than fix Kenny's voice I was mm-hmm. also very tired of barking at people on Sundays so mm-hmm. I felt like I was singing like I was barking mm-hmm. and uh, so you decide finally, if, if, there's years going on about yeah, us talking about this, so praying with you. So um, you decide finally to go to the surgeon. What happens? So I go to set up the schedule. I was going to take the first uh, couple, three weeks off of uh, the year, get the surgery. I worked it out with the clubs, and I thought that uh, I was going to be able to keep most of my gigs. And they went, and they uh, put the camera back up my nose and down my throat. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And uh, go on, keep the, going. Dr. Wendy, I like to call her, was, uh, that's her name. Uh, she was. <laughs> she looked a little dumbfounded, and I said, "What's wrong?" I, then I got really scared, and she said, "It's gone." And this was a big, large, angry polyp that actually touched my other vocal cord to the point where it couldn't vibrate. That's why I was having so much trouble singing. And uh, I hadn't had it photographed in about two years. So, uh, and I said, "What do you mean it's gone?" And she turned the screen over, and it was gone. It wasn't like it was gone. It was like it never existed. Um, and no remnants of it, no scars no remnant, from it, no nothing. No scar, no bump, no anything. It's just gone. And she, I said, well, how did that happen? She, and she said, I, I can't explain it. So I can explain it. That's prayer. I've, I felt my friend's prayers, the people here's prayers, my own prayers. Um, and it was and it was really an amazing find. Then again, fear. Then, then of course, fear. Of course, then you fear go back to fear. You go back to fear. I, was, I, was, uh, I wanted to celebrate it. And my friends wanted to celebrate it, but I, I have so many friends right now uh, that are in doc- they're they're in a, a fight for their life with with illness, with cancers. And I thought, well, oh, Kenny lost a bump on his throat, you know. But in my world, that was huge. That was my livelihood. I'm I'm I just got divorced, uh, which is another whole fear story. But I've got three kids at home with me. Um, and I, I needed to provide for them, and, and this whole thing kept kept happening, and I, I just decided to pray on it, hmm. and uh, I decided I wanted to share my story, because if my story could give anybody hope, you know, you hear healing stories, and uh, you all know me, if you don't, I'm, I'm right here, I've got pictures of they're gross, I'll show them on my phone, if you want to see the follow-up and they're gone, uh, but it's not somebody you heard about, it's, it's, it's me. And it really happened, and uh, it's it's just by you know the grace of God that, that it's gone, and, and I I'm never going to be a great singer like my my buddy Albert. 
None of us are saying like Albert here, by the way. Yeah. And uh, you know, but but I'm going to be able to uh, to continue to do God's work uh, yeah. by singing, and I feel so blessed by that. Can we thank uh, God and Jane for his story? Part of uh, part of what Kenny has been learning for the last uh, six months or so since he found this news out, he's actually relearning how to sing now that he has access to both of his uh, uh, chords. And so there are a lot of notes he has not been able to sing in a long time. And so this is a song we did way back in the CCD days, and he has not been able to sing it uh, since then. And today, as his gift to God, to say thanks for God's work in his life, and hopefully as a way of each one of us saying, I want to know a God like that, uh, he and Albert are going to sing this song together. So I want to have a prayer, and then I want you to experience this as Kenny's gift to God, and hopefully our gift to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the healer. We don't understand why sometimes you don't heal. We, we don't. But God, we thank you that you are trustworthy, even when we don't understand. During those years when we were encouraging Kenny and, and, and loving on him, um, we know you were still in control. And during the report that you brought miraculous healing, we just thank you. It's you are God who is incredibly faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. And wouldn't you want to know a God like that? Wouldn't you want to know a God like that? Whatever questions you have, whatever doubts you have, a God who walks with you through difficulty and wants to be your living water. Let me give you a chance just to respond as we close off class for the Titans today with a real simple prayer. Maybe you want to bow your heads with me and say, God, I need your help. I admit that some things in my life I'm to blame for. But I'm trusting you for forgiveness. I'm going to go under the knife with you. Let you do some surgery on me. And I want to give you worth worship, which means worthship. I want to give you worthship that you are worth trusting that you are worth pursuing and that you are worthy of my life and my heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for being here as we have finished this incredible journey of Clash of the Titans. We invite you back next week as we start a brand new series called Habits, Strategies to Reinvent Your Life. We'd love to see you and look forward to that. If you came prepared to give, there's offering boxes on the way out. If you're new to the church, third door on your left, is the hearth room. We'd love to greet you. If you want to come up and harass Kenny or encourage him or thank him, feel free to do that too. Thanks again. See you all.